Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 98. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Today, we're sharing a conversation we had with architect Phil Freelon, founder of Freelon Architects and current design director at Perkins & Will, the firm that recently acquired his namesake firm. Recent notable projects led by Mr. Freelon include the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Atlanta's National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, and Emancipation Park in Houston. We hope you enjoy our conversation with him discussing his work growing up in a creative activist household, his recent diagnosis with ALS, and his love of science fiction. Phil, this is uh, Ken from uh, Minneapolis. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article about you, and uh, you know, many things came to mind when I was reading it. In the article I was reading, they were talking to you about the Smithsonian Museum and the one thing that struck me, because we've had a lot of discussions here on the podcast, and we've had some online discussions as well, and it struck me that Freelon Architects has specifically stated that they would never design prisons, casinos, strip malls, that they were primarily focused on libraries, museums, and schools. Could you talk a little bit about why it was that you've made that um, really specific effort to not design facilities? Well, I would turn that around a bit and tell you that it's what we choose to design more so than than what we don't. And I only list a few building types to say that that's not our specialty. And, you know, similar to other professions, let's take the medical profession, for instance. You're going to have doctors who specialize in cardiology or radiology, podiatry, you know, whatever. There, There are so many disciplines and you can't be all things to all people. And when I started the Freeline Group, I decided that we would focus on the things that were of interest to us that also contributed positively to the communities in which they're built and that we could feel good about it when we finished the project. The ones, the project types you listed fall into that category. We feel like designing uh, places where people learn and are educated and go to discover art or learn about other cultures. These are the kinds of architectural projects that, that we're attracted to, and that's what we chose to focus on over the course of my career. Is that what you started with right off the bat when you first started up your own firm? Can I ask about, you know, the very early days when you started as just an office of one? Sure. Yeah. Well, even before then, um, because I had been practicing for 14 years before I started my firm and uh, the firms I worked with, I worked on the kinds of projects that we talked about, not that those firms did these those uh, things exclusively, but that's where my interest was and that's where my experience began to build. And so it made sense starting my own practice in 1990. I would build on the experience from over a decade of, of being out there doing that kind of work and you know, building relationships with the clients and building expertise. So as one person and then two, then five, then 10 and so on, we just built on that. And, you know, I started off with little school additions and, you know, renovations and things of that nature, uh, just as most practices would, you know, starting from scratch. And you you, you uh, just evolve over time, gain expertise and, and hope to have, uh, hope to expand into uh, larger and more interesting projects. And that's what's happened. Can I ask, though, you said you started in 1990. Weren't we kind of in a pretty awful recession then? That's when I got my first degree and it was impossible to find a job, I recall. Yeah, that, that's an interesting time. I, I actually uh, you know, stepped away from my prior firm in January of that year and the economy was looking great. The Gulf uh. War hit. And during the summer. So, you know, I remember looking back not too long ago at my business plan and I had cited articles in the architectural press and the, and the general 
media about how great the economy was and the forecasts were looking good. And, you know, I got offers from uh, six different banks to, to pick up my line of credit. Uh, and so wow. it started out fine for a while. You know, um, there, there's some positive things about starting in a, in a down economy, you know, and so we, 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 we tend to focus on the, on the pluses and not the negatives. For, for instance, there, there are good people available. <laughs> you get into some very good habits uh, business-wise uh, about how you set up and, and run a practice uh, and all those things were turned out to be, um, you know, positive things for a young firm. And, uh, and, and I, I would also say that, you know, our work over the years uh, has been in, in the public sector. And so when there's a down economy, it's the private sector that retracts uh, first, uh, you know, the developers and the banks. But there's a time lag because the funding cycles for public sector work, like colleges and universities that are public, uh, schools and municipalities, those funding cycles are six to 18 months out. And so um, that work continues for a while, even in the beginning of a recession. And so our focus had been on the public sector, and, and that was a kind of a saving grace uh, for starting out in 1990. So all those factors played into, you know, some early success and, and you know, moderate and steady growth. Phil, did you grow up in Philadelphia? I did. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. My parents are from there. My grandparents are from there. Um, so that's my hometown. It's your hometown. And uh, from, from what I understand, your grandfather was a, uh, a quite prolific impressionist painter in the early part of the 20th century and an activist as well, correct? That's right. Yeah, he was a, um, a noted painter and art educator uh, during the Harlem Renaissance period. And so um, if you pick up most books on African-American art uh, from that period, it's likely you'll see uh, some of his work and some reference to, you know, his paintings and his uh, activities there. And I remember him and certainly having art around the home and having that part of uh, growing up influenced, you know, my interest in, in the arts. And my parents, you know, kind of fed that interest and encouraged encouraged me and recognize some talent in the visual arts. And that was great. I wanted to jump in. I'm guessing growing up in Philly then and with your grandfather was there, there must have been an introduction and some time spent at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, the Furness building. Yeah. Would you consider Furness some kind of influence or did you have those kind of childhood experiences in those buildings that were? Uh, not not directly. Okay. You know, as a youngster, I, I was not really a serious student of the arts yet, you know, it came later. <laughs> but I remember you know, visiting museums and visiting my grandfather's studio and kind of poking my finger in the palette of oil paints and wondering, mm -hmm. well, why isn't that dried up, you know, and things like yeah. that. And, <laughs> yeah. and being, you know, exposed to the visual and performing arts because that's the way my family, you know, went about things. You know, they were, yeah. my parents were great like that. And, you know, taking us to concerts and galleries and things. Uh, so I, I was very fortunate in that regard. But I didn't know anything about any architects or Julian Abel or anyone else. Paul Williams didn't know anything about any, any architects, black, white, or otherwise. My parents didn't know any. And so I just kind of stumbled into it, not realizing or understanding much about it. It just turned out it was a, the right move for me and, and the right career because I just, you know, the more I learned about it and got into architecture school and just really excelled. You were in high school just around the time I was born. I was born in 1968. And so you were just coming into junior, senior year at that point. When you reflect on 
th- that period of your life and your your experiences in the city and, and you think about where we are today, what comes to mind? It's almost deja vu. I mean, <laughs> the mid-60s were just such a heady time. I mean, there was the Vietnam War and civil rights movement. And I just think about it. I was coming into age right at that time. It was just yeah. so compelling and powerful. You know, I had an afro and, you know, I just was really enamored with um, black culture and and it was just a, a very influential period of, of my life. And, and yeah, there was a lot of upheaval, but the music and the art and, and all that was just really wonderful. Uh, on the flip side, you know, they were busting heads in Philadelphia and Frank Rizzo was the police chief and you know, the riots and uh, assassinations during that period. You know, all of that converged to, to make just this uh, really intense um, coming of age for me and my siblings. And, and uh, it was just, and the reason I say it's deja vu is because, um, you know, the racial tension and, and all, it's just reminiscent now, you know, Black Lives Matters and kind of the political polarization that, that we see today is, is just very reminiscent. I mean, it's like bringing back memories. I say it to friends of mine all the time I, that if you had, would have told me when I was born, and I was born between Dr. King's assassination and Robert Kennedy's assassination, if you would have told me when I stepped out of my mother, well, when I was born, um, <laughs> and step out of anything, that I would be caught up in something very similar, I would have said you were a liar and that it was complete science fiction. Yeah, it's, it really is bizarre. Again, I, I'm just an optimist and, and I think that the times we're living in today, maybe it'll wake people up because a lot of this has been there, just hasn't been on the surface. And, and if, if the awareness is heightened about, you know, the, the struggles of the African-Americans and, and, you know, I think the struggling class in general, if if we're illuminating that now by virtue of what's happening, then maybe that's that's the positive we can take away from it. No one flipped the switch and all of a sudden we have, you know, attitudes uh, that have changed. They've always been there. They're just on the surface now. So, you know, I've been digging a lot around about you this weekend. And um, so one of the things that was pretty striking for me was looking at some of your a book list that, that I don't know if you recall, but I saw that, okay, so there's some science fiction in there that I thought, and I know that you have a, a degree from MIT, you know, science fiction has always kind of been on the periphery for me in terms of reading, but um, it seems pretty strong. And and I know that in just reading your biography and in seeing your son's background with Afrofuturism, you know, how did that come about? And how does that inform your thinking about design at all? Absolutely. Well, you've done your homework. This is great. I'm trying to. I really wanted to talk to you so much. I'm so impressed. I really did. The, the last interview I did, the woman asked me, tell me, who is Phil Freeland? I thought to myself, she hasn't done any research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but boy, you, you, you've been digging. That's great. Yeah, well, I, you know, science fiction, I'm trying to remember why and how that all got started. I think well, my older brother recommended Dune to me uh, by Frank Herbert, you know, back in the 60s. And, and I read it. And even before then, we, you know, we would go to the movies together. He's three years older, but we're very close. And so that it's always been a fascination. Then I met my wife and found out that she was when we were dating, you know, the first day we, we met, we talked about Dune and we talked about Star Trek and we talked about, you know, um, you know, Star Wars and all these things. And, and there was a common interest there. And, you know, I think as an African-American, you want to envision a future that's 
better, you know, for everyone. And that that's part of it. And then just um, trying to imagine how people would live, and that's the architecture piece, you know, uh, what is it about, you know, these different authors and their vision of the future that it might be, you know, inspirational to me as a professional, you know, in, in designing the built environment. So that's part of it. So, yeah, I mean, we it's, uh, you know, reading about that and then the movies and the TV shows is just a lot of fun. I mean, I watched an old Star Trek episode last night, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, you know, black people are there, they're in charge, they're, they're, they're important positions, and, you know, no one's talking about race unless it's the um, the aliens, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. And then to me, that was, that was kind of... Um, an optimistic look into the future. Gene Roddenberry, you know, had a had a very progressive uh, approach to how to how to depict those kinds of conflicts in the future to reflect back on where we are today to see how how crazy it is, you know. So those things have been intriguing to me about science fiction. So you mentioned, Mr. Freelon, that you were in Philly in the 60s, and I lived in Philly for 10 years, not too many years ago. But I was a big, I became a big fan of the Kenny Gamble sound during that time, which, you know, you can't escape his his amazing influence when you're there. And the music holds up. I mean, it's still my favorite music to listen to all the time. So I wanted to ask you about the Motown Museum edition and what you're doing there. Well, well before we do that, let's talk about Kenny Gamble. Okay, what are you doing for Kenny Gamble? Because he's a real urban activist, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, he, right before the recession, I think it was 2007 or 2008, he um, had a request for architects to come to Philadelphia and, you know, vie for the commission to design the Rhythm and Blues Center, mm-hmm. or actually called it the National Center for Rhythm and Blues, his own version of the Motown Museum. Right. And we went, and, along with five or six other architects, and, and um, presented to him, and, you know, he was blown away, he selected us, and, you know, I got to know him, and then the recession hit, and there wasn't any money, right. it was going to go on uh, South Broad Street, so I got to meet him and talk to him, and that was, that was just wonderful, and so, you know, the music, you know, was parallel with Motown, I love Motown also, yeah. uh, but being from Philadelphia, I'm, I'm a little bit biased to <laughs> Of that. course, the, the, the Philly, Philly sound. sound. <laughs> just grew, grew up with it, the, uh, the Delphonics, and the OJs, and Oh, the on, OJs. On, on. Love Train. It's the only song I cannot not dance to. <laughs> it's, it's terrific. Yeah. Well, and then so Motown came around about a decade ago, a similar process to Kenny Gamble's uh, search for an architect. The Motown folks, you know, invited a number of people to, to submit qualifications and then interviewed a handful of architects. We were one of them. This was in a, Los Angeles. Um, and I met Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson and others. Uh, we didn't get the project, and I was distraught about that <laughs> and just sort of forgot about it. And nothing ever happened with that version of, of, of the effort. And then when it came back around, I was called, and there wasn't any interview formal interview process with anyone else. They just called me and I went okay. to Detroit and, and met with Robin Terry, who who is the grandniece of Barry Gordy. Uh, Robin Terry's mother is Esther Gordy, who was uh, Barry's uh, sister. And when Mr. Gordy moved Motown to Los Angeles, it was Esther that kept up the Hitsville house and was sort of the keeper of the flame and all the artifacts and gowns and records and and stuff. Uh, and so it became sort of a mom and pop kind of museum based right there in, in the old Hitsville house. And so her, her granddaughter, Robin Terry, who's now the, um, the president, CEO, chairman of the board of the Motown Museum, has been you know, working on a plan to 
to renovate, add to, and sort of build in the Motown Museum. And so we went out and showed her what we had done in other places and talked about her vision, and we, we continued to work on it. And we, we're the architects now. We're in schematic design. We've helped them raise uh, the funds with uh, the United Auto Workers and Ford Motor Company as initial donors. Met with the Motown alumni in Los Angeles and in Detroit with enthusiastic support of of our concept, and so it's we're off and running. That's it's a excellent. delightful project. I'm just you know can't be more thrilled. You know, people Absolutely. often ask me when when they when we talk about the um, the Smithsonian Museum. You know, I get this uh, kind of snide comment about, well, what's next? What else could you do now? <laughs> that? And I said, well, I'm doing well, I'm doing the Motown Museum. As a matter of fact, that's the next. <laughs> <laughs> it ranks. Which is pretty Absolutely. darn cool. <laughs> it's pretty darn cool. So I, one of the articles I've read about, you've said that it told the story of how you approached the building committee or the executive committee or whatever their title is for the Motown Museum, and that you initially asked them to bring images of buildings that they love, as well as some kind of artifact of Motown and what that meant and how that influenced their thoughts on Motown. And since you do so many cultural buildings, I sort of wanted to get, see if you could talk a little about how you draw those sort of memories and cultural identities and what's important and what people love and feel passionate about in these projects. I assume you do that with many of your clients. We do. And, and, uh, with any project, especially, uh, projects rooted in, in culture of some sort, you know, like libraries and museums or cultural centers or, it's important to to figure out, you know, what are the drivers, what are the aspirations and visions of of, of your your constituents, the people, you know, the stakeholders in whatever the institution is. And so we we put a lot of uh, effort into listening, listening aggressively, uh, trying to understand what it is uh, that's at the root of those institutions and what's the drive, what are the drivers. And we do a lot of research on our own so that we can bring and say, well, this is what we've seen and this is what we've heard uh, on our own. And then, you know, part of the charrette process is to share those things and, and to have a common understanding of what's important, right? And so that you're not marching off into design without having those those kinds of engagements that really inform the design solution. You know, we don't we don't go off and you know for for a month or two and then come back and unveil some masterpiece. It's a process, and it's a process that is participatory with with the um you know with, with the stakeholders, and it informs what we do. So what you described in Motown, those exercises are some of the ways that we get at the uh, essence of what what a particular um, building or location or program should be. Can you share one from any project that's particularly moved you that you recall? Uh, sure, sure. Um, when we were doing the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, you know, one of the exercises we, we had was uh, a postcard from the future. And we asked people to write down, you know, what they saw and felt, you know, like seven or eight years in the future when the, when the, um, the museum was open. You know, what, what were the emotions that they felt? What did they see? You know, uh, and so the idea was to to look ahead and try and visualize the future. Hey, we're getting into science fiction a little bit here. And, Appropriate. And so that was great. And then we, we asked them to pretend they were standing next to someone, you know, because if, you're, if you've been involved in the process, sometimes you're, you're too close to it. And so we wanted them to imagine what other people might say wandering in for the first time and seeing it. You know, if you're the architect, if you've been on the building committee and the user group or the owners, 
you know, you, you're immersed in this stuff for year after year of, of development of ideas and planning and construction, but someone just arriving, you know, has a totally different perspective on things. And, and so we wanted folks to imagine what, what would a stranger to the process or, or a new patron of the institution coming in, what, what did they say and what did they feel? So these are just some exercises that we, we have. Um, and then we give homework before we get there and we ask people to, to bring you know, images of buildings or places that they, they have been impressed with or that moved them in some way. And they don't have to be a museum. It could be anything. And that's the way to communicate, not with words, but visually through images and yeah, you can describe it with words, but you know, um, we get to see the kinds of things that to do or not to do to avoid and have to talk about what, what is it you like about that particular courtyard or entry sequence or, or how, why, why did you show this particular gallery or this particular theater, you know, or what is it about that and, and try and drill down a little bit into, you know, the uh, drivers for, for those, for that emotional response. And, you know, all these things, you know, feed in, you know, are helpful to us as designers because uh, at the end of the day, we, we want to interpret what we see and what we hear and, and, and we want to interpret that into three-dimensional form. And it's just part of our process. Phil, when I was looking at your firm's website, one of the projects that struck me, particularly because it was, uh, one, it was quite beautiful. Two, I'm just curious to know if there's still hope that it will be constructed or if it is under construction, was uh, Emancipation Park in uh, Texas. Yes, it's almost finished. It is. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that is fantastic. It's a beautiful park. Yeah, well, I can send you some photographs of, of the completed, it's near completion, and, and we had uh, one of our architects took some really nice shots. Of it. But yes, that's been realized, and uh, we're very excited about it. The Juneteenth celebration coming up, summer is going to be there that that's kind of their signature event but before that you know the the director of parks and recreation there is having his retirement party there <laughs> he's been so pleased with being involved with it his name is joe turner so i'm going there in march to he asked me to speak at his retirement celebration but yeah that's been a, a great project for us and it involved all the things we talked about we had a number of stakeholder meetings you know, we, we engaged the community numerous times to get feedback and buy-in and, uh, you know, support for a community-based project like this in the third ward of Houston, Texas, which is uh, the historically, uh, one of the historic black neighborhoods. And, you know, back 40s, 50s, and 60s, if you were black and you wanted to go swimming, you had to come to Emancipation Park. It was the only swimming pool in the city that black folks could swim in. You know, of course, it's segregated south. It's not a, it's not a new story. It's just and I lived in Houston for a while, so I, I knew people there. And early in my career, I, uh, I was in Texas for two years in Houston. So getting to the Smithsonian project, you know, I, I just recently watched the documentary, um, I Am Not Your Negro. And I thought one of the interesting quotes to come out of that story about James Baldwin was that um, the story of the African-American is an American story and about slavery is it's an American story. And, and you talk about the museum as being an American story. And it's so, it seems to me that it's lost on people that this is you know, that this is a story that is purely about African-Americans when it's really an American story. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you were thinking about this museum and how long you had been thinking about it? And and could you talk a little bit about uh, your project manager, Zena Howard, your senior uh, principal involved in the project? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And the American, the, the African-American story 
is what uh, Lonnie Bunch calls the quintessential American story, right? It could, it could be about the, the uh, Irish people, or it could be about you know other immigrants. Our, our immigration was forced, but it's you know what you do when you get here, and the, the struggles and the, the triumphs, and the, not just the victims and perpetrators, but you know the the successes and the resiliency. All that is part of an American story, and like I say, the quintessential one. And the way that is reflected. And the exhibit is not, I mean, in the, in the institution, it's not just the exhibits, which, you know, get into the finer grain of things. But we felt that the building should begin to express those, those aspirations and, and part of the history should be conveyed through the architecture. And that's a, a common theme in our work, particularly the cultural work. We feel that the architectural element should be more than just a container or a wrapper around exhibits. We feel that the architecture should help to tell the story. You know, it should be integral with the exhibitry and the artifacts and, you know, all that's going on there. Um, so that it is a, um, a unified experience. You know, the visitor experience is uh, seamless. And so that that's something that, you know, we, we talked about in pursuing the project. And for me, that the pursuit of that work, that commission, it goes back about, you know, 12 or 13 years where I had heard about the project and, and that, um, it was a commission that was set up to study the possibility of a museum on the mall in Washington. And that was in 2003, 2004, in that, in that range. And I began to visit D.C. and attend the commission meetings and got to know some of the commissioners there. And, you know, and so it's, I, I knew that it was a long shot. It would take a lot of preparation and, and being in the right place at the right time. And, and so that pursuit the idea of it goes way, way back for me and, you know, thinking about it for years and then preparing and putting together an alliance of architects that put us in a, a good position to compete and buy for the work. So I only heard about Paul Revere Williams about this time a year ago, and I was looking at his work and what blew me away was the diversity of the work. Um, it was modern. It had, you know, old Hollywood. It had this, it, it had a stylistic range that I think rivals many contemporaries today that you wouldn't expect to be that varied. When did you first come to know about Paul's work and how did you get involved in the process to get the AIA to award him the gold medal? Posthumously, of course. Well, you know, as a young architecture student, I was curious to know who else out there has been doing this and I'm looking for my heroes and the history of architecture courses in, in the curriculum around curricula around the country don't, they don't talk about anything but the Western and, and American architects, right? Nothing about African architects. They might be now, but you know, not much. I'll guarantee you that. So the focus is on a certain narrow slice of, of what someone thinks is excellence or you know, is worth note. And so people like Julian Abel, if you don't know who he is, you should look him up, A-B-E-L-E, Philadelphia architect, a contemporary of, of um, Paul Williams, a little older, an architect in Philadelphia, as a matter of fact. But anyway, back to your question, I, I wanted to know about these things. And so I found out about Paul Williams and probably every black architect you talk to will will tell you they, they've heard of Paul Williams. Every white architect you ask wouldn't know or doesn't know. <laughs> so it's a matter of, of seeking out, you know, um, your own heroes and wanting to, to find out, you know, is there a path for me in this profession? And so uh, I found out about Paul Williams somewhere along the way dur during uh, my student days. 
I never met him, but I knew about him. And I guess a few years ago, or maybe two years ago or so, a conversation started with uh, the National Organization of Minority Architects, which I'm a member. It's mostly African-American architects, but also includes other underrepresented groups. There was a, a notion that, well, look, Paul Williams needs to be recognized. We all knew that he was this incredible architect and that there wasn't any notion of this beyond, I guess, the black community of architects, which is very small. You know, 2% of the architects in this country are African-American. And, you know, there's a process that the AIA uh, has. There's a whole division of that organization that focuses on awards, whether that be the firm of the year or the AIA gold medal or, um, you know, national design awards for buildings. And so part of that process is um, nominations and letters to get you at least considered for the AIA gold medal. There's some things that have to happen. And, and so we organized that and got letters from, from people like Frank Gehry and Denise Scott Brown, two former AIA gold medal winners, you know, wrote on behalf of Paul Williams to be considered for this, along with a bunch of black architects, as you can imagine. So we, you know, we, we were able to get in the position to be you know, selected as one of the finalists. And this year, there were three finalists and Paul Williams was one of them. And um, I was chosen or asked to, to be the person to present our case to the board of the American Institute of Architects. And I prepared the, uh, the PowerPoint show. We had 12 minutes, so that was tough <laughs> to li limit that. And I presented, and, uh, and I, w I was there with, uh, with Robert A.M. Stern, who, who presented Zaha Hadid, and then Moshe Safdi presented Richard Rogers. And I presented Paul Williams, and um, and we prevailed. So I'm I'm very proud of that, and happy that uh, Mr. Williams is getting the the recognition that he so so much deserved, uh, albeit you know late, long overdue. Long overdue. So Phil, when I mean you're an F, <laughs> meaning FAIA. <laughs> You know, recently the, the AIA has gone through some storm and drawing around the issues regarding the knee-jerk support for the current president and then um, is now hitting the backside of a conservative backlash on the, the more conservative end of the profession. You know, when you think about the profession as a whole, do you feel, are you comforted by the direction we're heading? Are you concerned? I mean, what's your sense of, of us as a professional organization? I, I know we have a lot to do. I think we're horribly underserved by uh by our leadership in terms of representation. And so I wonder what your thoughts were around that. Well, I think that uh, architects could do more in general. And therefore, you know, by extension, I'll say that our service organization, our professional organization could certainly do more. I mean, architects have the skill set and the, um, the position in our society to be more impactful in some of these entrenched social problems that we see. You know, whether it's housing or equity issues in terms of resources, um, energy conservation, sustainability, you know, yet a lot of times we're just more focused on giving awards for pretty buildings uh, uh, <laughs> that are designed for people who can afford, you know, the very, the very most expensive materials and, and sites and things. And so it's, 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 it's disappointing that we as a profession haven't done more. And, you know, if you think about the lack of diversity, if someone, if, if the room with all the people that make these decisions about what letters to write and who to support, if there was more diversity in the room, someone might have said, you know, wait a minute, let's think about 
or we're going to stay after the election. You know, for all the reasons that diversity is the right thing to do, you know, having different viewpoints in the room is is helpful, especially from a design perspective. But in something simple like, you know, how are we going to re- respond to the current political situation, or should we respond, or if we do, what what's appropriate and what's not, whether it's from the conservative or, or liberal perspective, and you got to have more than just a couple of guys in the room that all went to the same schools and look all the same. You know, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. So, you know, I've been pounding on the AIA. We all have for a long time. I just did a panel discussion in New York last month about uh, the lack of diversity in the profession. It was at the, um, the Architecture Center, uh, which is the headquarters for the New York AIA. And we talked about this, and, and it's just... Um, you know, people have been lamenting, oh, the AIA is not diverse. And, you know, we wring our hands and we, we fret about it. And, you know, decade after decade goes by and it's, it's still the same. So do you have advice for younger architects coming up for how to keep pounding on that problem that you've been working on? Yeah, it's a multifaceted issue and problem because, first of all, architecture is kind of a small profession to begin with. There aren't many of of us, of any calling, you know, I think there are 110,000 architects in the country. That's it. And well, by comparison, I think there's something like 800,000 physicians and well over a million attorneys. (laughs) So it's a small profession. And then of that small profession, we have a very tiny slice, 2%. So the, the key is bringing up, you know, that percentage, uh, and making the profession more diverse. And that's, sounds easier than it is. I mean, if you think about the all the the obstacles to becoming an architect, it's just a miracle that, that those of us can get through it. I mean, first of all, you have to know exactly what you want to do out of high school. Why? Because the architecture curriculum in these credited schools of architecture begins on day one. And many of the schools, most of them have higher entrance requirements for those programs, the design programs, than for the general university, you know, if you're applying to school. And you have to know this. How many kids know at age 17 or 16, you know, applying or 17, 18, this is what I want to do for my career? I was fortunate. I knew. But it's not the average person. Now, you know, if you have the resources, you you can go and, you know, do four years and become a history major and then go to Harvard and get your your master's of uh, architecture. Not everybody can afford to, to do that and have, have, have the resources and the flexibility to, to do it. So, you know, that's that's a barrier, just getting in, get, knowing about the profession, getting accepted to an architecture school, an accredited program. And then once you're there, what happened? Anybody on the line an architect? Yeah. Yes. Ken and I both are. Yeah. Okay. So you know what it's like to get through <laughs> oh, yeah. architecture school. Yeah. And you have to, you know, the, the late nights and the the professors that smash your models and discourage you. And <laughs> yeah. So it, just just imagine getting getting to architecture school and there's nobody else around that looks like you, no no professors to mentor you. And that's why I say it's a miracle so many of us have gotten yeah. through because it's, it's hard for anybody, you know. And, and what if you came from a high school that was substandard and, you know, you're trying to catch up on the required math and science courses because... You know, you're from the inner city, and the and the schools were crappy. And in the meantime, you know, you you're you're being asked to stay up all night and build these models and stuff. So I'm I'm just giving you a sense of why there aren't more, why it's not more diverse. Awareness, the difficulty of of the curriculum. You get out, you're not making any money. 
is you got to take an exam before that. You got to qualify and work for nothing for a few years to have the privilege of taking this two, three day exam. And then your license, then what do you have? You're still earning a pittance. (laughs) This is is crazy, you know, and uh, unless you're totally dedicated and it's just hard to get through. So it's interesting. Those of us who are African-Americans that come through, I mentioned the 2%. Well, guess what? The fellowship in the AIA is 4% African-American. Why? Because if you make it through that far, you, you are already better than most of the people around you. And, you know, it's just... You're operating at a very high level. Phil, do you have time for just a couple more questions? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. In a a 30-plus year career that you've had, and you've recently been diagnosed with ALS, how has your career as an architect informed you about, maybe had an impact on you when you move forward with the disease? And, And how is that disease, do you think it will impact you as you move forward as an architect? Okay. Well, that diagnosis impacts everything, uh, including uh, personal and professional life and everything. And so, you know, that's a really short, direct answer. And I've always been sensitive to and issues of accessibility. But when you're you're hitting those barriers yourself, it, it brings a different kind of reality to it. And so there's um, uh, there's a higher uh, level of, of uh, awareness about universal design and accessibility and um, not just putting a ramp over there so somebody can get up, but how does someone, you know, feel a part of the, the normal experience of, of a building without being, yeah, you can get in, but you got to go around the corner to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's had an impact on my thinking about design. I think it, it underscores something that I've always believed in and, and has always been committed to, and that's uh, equality and, and accessibility, and so that it's not a change; it's just sort of a intensification of 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 a commitment that I've always had. Now, because I'm doing meaningful work that's fun and exciting and invigorating, I want to continue to do that rather than just throwing my hands in the air and saying, "Well, I only have a few years; let me just check out." And uh, you know, I, I'm continuing to work full time, continuing to travel, and, and you know, that gives me energy, and it's. It's um, it's been a continuing with my work has been a plus, you know, and my clients know about my situation and uh, it's not impacting my work yet. It might, it will over time. And, you know, probably sooner than later, I will curtail, you know, some of the travel and my time in the office. This condition in some cases affects, you know, person's ability to speak. That's not happening yet. It's more for me, it's starting more with my legs and and mobility in the lower half of my body. And so for that, I'm grateful because if I wasn't able to to communicate, it would be more difficult to do my work, you know, if I wasn't able to speak. So uh, I'm grateful for small things like that. And I have the support of my family and, you know, my children and grandchildren are around me. And and so, uh, you know, I just want to continue to to have a positive impact on the communities where I work and and uh, it gives me pleasure and satisfaction to still, you know, 30 years in the profession to, to do this. And, you know, uh, I'm fortunate to still feel passionate about my work and excited every morning when I get up to come in and do it. I noticed on your, your list, Brief History of Time, have you had the opportunity to reach out to uh, Professor Hawking? No, I haven't. <laughs> I did that list years ago. And, uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I saw the list. I'm like... Oh, so it's kind of ironic. <laughs> but uh, no, I haven't. I mean, he, he's a international 
icon and superstar, and he, he wouldn't know who I was and why I was calling. What? You're a superstar. <laughs> You're a star. And, you know, and he's made some he's made some um, choices about how he deals with the disease that I'm not sure I would want to do. You know, quality of life is important to me. So I'm not at the point where I've got to decide, you know, do I want to have a machine breathe for me? Do I want to be fed with a tube and move, move nothing but my eyes to try and communicate? So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in some ways, I don't want to know any more about that than I need to <laughs> when the time comes. But yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting. Uh, looking back on it, that, He's the only person I knew with, knew of with ALS, aside from Lou Gehrig, and here we are talking about it. You know, I don't know six, seven, eight years after I made that list. Will, will you attend the convention this year in Orlando? Yeah, yes, I'll be there. Yep. Can I meet you and shake your hand? <laughs> sure, of course. I'd be happy to do that. Let's stay in touch so we can do that. All right. I wanted to finish up by asking the. And two questions that we typically ask our, our guests. Who are you reading these days and what are you listening to? Oh, that's a great, great question. Well, I like Malcolm Caldwell and I've, I've read his books. And um, so those, those are kind of recent. And I also read all of Dan Brown's books, you know, so those are fun. Uh, and of course, uh, some, some science fiction mixed in there. Octavia Butler. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just tremendous. And she also happens to be an African-American woman. So, um, see, what am I listening to? You know, we, we've been into Brazilian music in recent years, uh, not just the bossa nova, but deeper into it, the, the uh, Afro-Cuban influence and uh, Salvador Bahia and the, the African diaspora through Brazil and the music that comes out of that. Milton Nascimento, Jovan, folks like that. So, and, you know, being married to a, a jazz musician, six-time Grammy nominee, <laughs> you know, music, music's in, in the house all the time. So we, we enjoy that. Excellent. Awesome. It's been a pleasure talking yeah. to you. It's been an honor. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you. Thanks so much to Mr. Freelon for joining us this week and to everyone out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to everybody in a couple weeks.